Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me, so let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I'm your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are trying to change the complexion of wealth. Today's guest, I couldn't be more excited to have this gentleman on the show today. We met almost a year ago through social media, so it speaks to the power of that, but this is just a phenomenal gentleman. He is a firm owner. He's an author, just an all-around good guy, and I can't wait for you guys to get a chance to meet him. We're going to have a great conversation. So without further ado, the Sarte Yarnway, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Emlyn. This for me is a full circle moment, man. I remember you being on the Young Money podcast last year and us just really, you know, kind of starting a conversation about minorities and money. And I know that on my podcast, that was one of the most listened episodes in the year of 2018. So I really thank you for that. And I'm happy to return the favor. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on. That was actually the first time I was ever on a podcast. And I remember talking to you about it, like, man, I want to start a podcast and just being nervous and scared and all that. And you're like, you got this, bro. You got this. So to have my guy on with me now, like you said, coming full circle. Now we're going to have you on this show. And, and I really think you're going to bless our guests today. Give us a little bit about your, your background. Desarte. Well, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, right? So I played college football at the University of California, Berkeley. I am the son of Liberian immigrants that fled Liberia due to a war, civil war. Our country has been trialed with 14 years of civil war. So my mom and my dad came and tried to build a home here for their six children. I have five older sisters and I'm the only boy and the youngest. So you can imagine when I tell people that, that like I'm dating, they're like, wow, <laughs> you're spoiled. So in 2003, my father passed away from terminal prostate cancer. And being the only young man that was in the family, I thought that I had a huge responsibility to help kind of bring some pride, right, to my last name. So being a young boy in an impoverished neighborhood, I thought to myself, like, what can I do to, you know, make my mom proud, make my dad proud as he's watching over me in heaven? So the way that I tried to stay out of trouble, our neighborhood was one of the most notorious neighborhoods in San Francisco before the huge Silicon Valley run and the gentrification that's taking place. I decided to play sports. So my first love was basketball, but I was really, I guess, talented at playing the game of football. So fast forward, when I was in a senior in high school, I was named the first All-American in San Francisco since O.J. Simpson. I got over 50 Division I scholarships to play at schools all over the country. And I made the decision to commit to the University of California, Berkeley, where I'd obtain my degree. And, you, you know, I really wanted to try to go to the NFL because what you see in our communities, you try to replicate, you try to be, right? So I'm like, this is... The easiest route for me to help my mom, number one, you know, and use my talents to just make some differences in the community. With that being said, when I was a junior, I had a great chance of starting these different NFL football teams were really interested in, you know, my ability and were considering me as a draft pick. So my plan was to have a phenomenal season, maybe declare for the draft, right, and put these wheels in motion to begin this generational wealth that I wanted to kind of be the leader and the pioneer for in my family, right? Long story short, I tore my ACL that same season. 
we played Colin Kaepernick that season. I mean, my teammates were like, put Desarte in the game. You know what I mean? It was just one of those deals that were like the fingerprints were all around your hard work and your success. And I was let down due to injury. It's nobody fault. It was just the circumstance and the nature of the game. So at that point, I thought to myself like, hey, man, you saw what happened. You've gone through this grueling nine months rehab. You have to start to think outside of the box and think, quite frankly, like outside of the gridiron. You know what I mean? And I began to do internships in different industries. So I did medical. I did technology, obviously, because we're in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. I did like sales. I did all types of different things to get a feel for what I liked. And by the time I was graduating, I didn't find, you know, the thing. Nothing excited me more than running through the tunnel, right? And scoring a touchdown or being in the locker room with my teammates. So that was kind of challenging for me. But one of the best offers I would say that I got that got me into the industry was at a firm here in, in California. It was the largest independent firm in the country. So the largest RA, like how your firm is constructed and how my firm is constructed. And I went there. I thought I was rich, you know, being 21, graduating, getting a salary, getting a 50% 401k match. You know what I mean? It's just consistent money bi-weekly coming from a college football player that's eating noodles, trying to pay his rent with the stipend in Berkeley, California. You know what I mean? And I sat next to, you know, brilliant individuals. I got the opportunity to speak with Ken Fisher, who is the CEO and self-made billionaire of the firm. And I thought to myself that this type of information was missing in the communities for the people that needed it the most. So I charged myself with the challenge of being the messenger that would give it to them. And that's how I kind of got started on this rabbit hole that is my career. That's awesome. You know, you hear the story and there's some more stuff that I want you to talk about a little bit because having the dream of going to the NFL, all too familiar for a lot of the listeners that are here, having the stuff that happened with your family and losing your father and then, you know, kind of grinding through that, finishing college, graduating from Berkeley, go Bears, and just overcoming those obstacles. But then, you know, we fast forward, you finish your career, you graduate from college, you start working, and then you start writing books, like not not one, not two, but you're on your third book now, right? Right. So let's talk about that. Like, you're just writing books? like. Okay, so I'll tell an interesting story, actually, in the afterword of the book of how I got into writing, right? I'll tell you the part that I left out. So again, five sisters, right? A mom and a dad that passed away early. I was 12 when he passed away. I had to learn how to tie a tie for my sixth grade teacher because I went to a Catholic school and we had to wear ties at mass. So I'm like, all the boys knew how to do it. You know, their dads taught them or they learned younger because they were going to the school way before that I did, right? I was like, I don't know how to do this. And I didn't have anybody to show me, right? So how I started writing was my mom used to work swing shift and like graveyard shifts at night. So my dad would be home before he passed or I had like a key and, you know, in the hood, you kind of raise yourself. I would come home and there would be notes for me from my mom. Like, hey, wash your dishes, do your homework, you know, go to bed at this time, whatever the case is. Your sister tells me you're being bad, you know, the usual stuff. But instead of being there, pointing the finger and giving me the eye, right, she was there writing to me. So when I got a chance to respond, that was the way for me to defend myself with my older sisters. That was a way for me to tell her like what I was doing. That was a way for me to just communicate. So as I look back on my life, I think that writing has always been a way for me to be expressive. You got to understand my parents were refugees and they always went back to Liberia and like brought other refugees to our house. My house has six children. 
in total. But we also had other people that were coming and going because my dad was just trying to save the community from war. So it's like in the midst of all of that, I don't want to say that they forgot about us, but it's like you got to figure an outlet in addition to, you know, just talking to your parents or whatever the case. And for me at the time, writing was that outlet. So I take that and I say, hey, how do I as a now, you know, I matriculate through my career. I've worked at Fisher. I've worked at another firm. I was the youngest vice president at the second largest bank by assets in D.C. and New York. How do I take everything I've learned and really give that information to the people who need it in the easiest way possible? The way that I thought of first was blogging and writing because I felt like I can communicate very complicated things simply. You know what I mean? And that was my way to do it. And I think that's the background of the story. So in terms of the books, this writing, I feel like we're in a race as minorities to always prove our credibility, right? Like I can do this. Why is there a glass ceiling, whether you're at corporate or, you know, even if you're running your own businesses and facing some challenges, right? So imagine this, a young 24 year old guy trying to build his business and saying, I am capable enough to do the job. I might not be at a Wells Fargo. I might not be at a Goldman Sachs, things that might give you instant credibility, Merrill Lynch, UBS, things like that. But I can do this job and I can do it for myself. So I took that writing of the books as a way to establish credibility, but most importantly, to inform a community. And my first book, Dating Benji, Straight Talk on Improving Your Relationship was born. That came out, I want to say, in March of 2016, three months after I launched my firm. And with that being said, that book, it went crazy, right? So we cracked Amazon top 100 in the money management subsection of financial literacy. And you got to understand this money management section is like cornered. The market is cornered by Tony Robbins, Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey. You know what I mean? So for us to even crack the top 100 was crazy. And I'm like, wow, I did this through my own marketing efforts on social media, really tapped into a community. And that was like the beginning of seeing how writing was able to work for me. So from that experience, right, a publisher, very well-known publisher here in Oakland, California, I think they're the biggest independent publisher in the world at this point, reached out to me and said, hey, we can't believe you did this. <laughs> How'd you do it? And I'm like, I just told myself I was going to write a book. And, you know, I really didn't care at the time if anybody read it. It was more so my way of saying, you know, for any clients that would come, which I had none at the time were interested in working with me. I'm like, this is my story. And this is what I feel like people need to know. Straight talk on improving your relationship with money because in our communities, that's where it starts. Like we all don't have great relationships with money. So they were like, hey, why don't you try to write a book for us? And from that experience and signing that deal, Young Money, Four Proven Actions on Designing Your Wealth While You Still Can was born. And that book took a deep dive in how young professionals and growing families could monetize their biggest asset, which was time to their advantage to design their wealth. Right. That was the whole thing. Like we got to understand, man, I feel like in our communities, especially being black. And if you're from an impoverished neighborhood, you don't see people living long or like living well long. You know what I mean? So it's like, sometimes you feel like the process is rushed. Like some people might turn to, you know, my neighborhood crime or the life that you probably don't want to live to get things fast. And other people might just be hopeless you know, or just settle or whatever the case is. So this book was encouragement to say, hey, you have enough time to really design your life in the way that you see fit. Design your wealth 
on your terms, right? And I was really trying to push that message very strongly. So that was the second book. And from that, the Young Money Podcast was born to get stories like yours on there to really encourage people to be what they can see or what they can hear, such as a owner of a firm like you are, Madeira, such as a NFL athlete, such as, you know, entrepreneur and advertising or, you know, different ways to use their time to build their wealth through investments. It's a common theme that I'm seeing, like people saying that you can be what you can see. Right. And so growing up, you didn't see too many black men in suits. And this is not only for, for black, but all people of color. Like there wasn't a lot of Latinos walking in suits. There wasn't a lot of different nationalities that you would see in suits walking around. So then you don't really like what do you have to aspire to be? Because it's one thing to see it on TV, but it's a completely different thing when I can actually see you walk into a building. I actually ran across that on Facebook when you were doing the stuff for the Young Money book. And being in that room, you know, and being the person that you've already written a book, they want you to come and write a second book. And I just think it's incredible, man. I, I love hearing your story about that and, and then leading us to the third book. So what's the third book about? Yeah. Before I get to the third book, I just agree so much with what you said, right? So it's like, you can't be what you can't see. And I think that it's our charge as people that are trying to be progressive for all minorities and all people in general to be proximate to the people that might not have a view. So what I mean by that is like, we got to go to the communities and go to the high schools and, you know, go to the places where people might not have a front row seat to see you doing your thing because they might not come to your office, but if you're visible in the community, if you're visible in where they are, they're going to be like, you know what, at minimum, I'm going to tell somebody about this man that's doing something that is incredible, right? I'm going to tell my son or my daughter, you know, Emlyn's daughter, like her dad is doing something incredible. You know what I mean? And I think that's powerful. So we got to get proximate with our gift so that we can touch more people. Proximity is powerful. Proximity. I like that a lot. So let's circle back around and pay me in equity. Now, there's been a lot of talk and, you know, I learned equity the hard way through my book deal, the second one. We won't get too much into that because I feel like that experience was very beneficial for me. But in the media, there were four things that kind of drove me to write this book. The first one was the IPOs of a lot of these tech companies that are happening right in my backyard. So as you know, this year, Uber IPO'd, Lyft IPO'd, Slack just IPO'd. You had Zoom Technologies that IPO'd, a lesser known one. So when we're saying IPO, so the listeners understand what IPO is. Can you quickly just tell us what an IPO is? Yeah. So that's an initial public offering. And essentially what a company is doing is offering shares or ownership of their company on a public exchange. So like the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, things of that nature, right? For you to buy and essentially be an owner, a fractional owner of that company. So with that being said, these IPOs were happening. And a lot of these young people that are here in the Bay or at, you know, any company really are getting offered equity compensation. And that's just saying in addition to your cash compensation, so that's going to be the gross amount that you see on your offer letter or your hourly wage, they're offering equity. And that can come in the form of four different forms. So ISOs or options, incentive stock options, non-qualified stock options, restricted stock units, and employer stock purchase plans. But the thing about it is a lot of these professionals don't really know what they are. Like, I'm telling you, coming from a community like mine, you're like, what is equity? Come? What are options? What do I do with them? What effects do they have for me? Right. I wanted to make that simple. 
I didn't want it to feel like when you got to your HR meeting or you got your offer letter, you were just like, okay, I'm just going to sign because I don't really know what's going on. So in this book, we give the keys and, you know, we get, kind of give them the information that they need to make proper decisions in part one. So that was the first motivating factor. The second was the death of Nipsey Hussle, who's a figure in our community who owned everything. So he came into the music business trying to vertically integrate his model. So he owned the studio, the masters, the record deal, you know what I mean? The advertising, the merchandise. And essentially that was all equity. I talk about it in the book a little bit. Won't go into detail. He was tragically murdered on March 31st of this year. But after his murder, his estate saw an increase because people were streaming and buying his albums and buying his merchandise. I think the Marathon store made $10 million in gross sales six weeks after his passing. He owned all of that, right? The marathon continues. And that's that's ownership. That's equity. That's what you want to happen, God forbid, when we depart as we all will, right? So by him having that equity, it definitely helped his beneficiaries and his family and will for, for years to come. The third one was a story that I mentioned about Beyonce. That was very motivating how she owned the equity in her performance. And we'll talk about that in the book when it comes out. And then the fourth, as I mentioned before, was just my experience with the publisher, right? So if you don't know anything about record deals, creators, or things of that nature, like the publisher will give you a fraction of what your book is worth, or the record label will give you a fraction of what your art is worth, right? To reap the benefits of the sales that they'll make in the future. So essentially what they want to do is participate in the income of your asset, the thing that you've created. And I remember in the book, I said that people only care about the milk, but care less about the cow that produces it. And this is the way of the world. Rich people have done this for years. Like, you know, I'm not going to write the book or I'm not going to make the album. So what I'll do is I'll pay in advance of what we think is worth or, you know, typically lower than that amount. And then we're going to market it and distribute it. So it makes more. We make our money back and then some for the life that this asset exists. So knowing that I'm like a book called pay me in equity. I got to self publish it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Can. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what kind of encouraged me to write the book. And I think that with this, I'm able to, you know, keep the integrity of my voice, disseminate the information and have it be a fun read at the same time. So when you're in a book and you talk about growing your personal equity, which that's what this podcast today was about, is going to be about growing your personal equity. First of all, what does that mean for the listeners? What does it mean to grow your personal equity? Just talk about that a little bit. So in the book, how we simply describe personal equity is it's a measure of one's holistic well-being, right? Or one's holistic wealth. So a lot of the times when we talk about equity, what we're just talking about is money. And the two most common ways that people are going to talk about equity is this. They're going to say equity is, you know, something that my job can give me. So I own a fractional piece of that company or equity is going to be the value of my home that's increasing. So a lot of people will say we have equity in our home, right? Those aren't the two only ways, in my opinion, for equity. And those aren't the two only things that contribute to your holistic well-being. So what we do is we give seven pillars of what I call personal equity. There's other things that contribute to your life, that contribute to your well-being, that contribute to your joy, your happiness and your family's multi-generational wealth from both an economical and an economic sense that I feel like people overlook. And it's like you can be the richest man in the world and be unhappy. You know what I mean? And 
because of that, you have to focus on the other pillars of personal equity. And that's something that I don't want to get lost in translation as we talk about equity, as we talk about happiness, as we talk about a spirit led life or a life of substance. You know what I mean? And I think that like outside of the equity compensation, I think that's going to be very helpful. But I think growing your personal equity allows people to understand that life is more than a bank account balance. Life is more than the value of your accumulated assets in your investment account. And life is usually valuable because of the things that you cannot quantify. And I think that's where the power is in this specific chapter. It's so easy to get caught up in chasing after dollars and thinking that the dollars that you make, the money you make is going to make you happy. And you see it all the time. Like there's a lot of people that have a lot of money and just very unsatisfied with their lives. So to be able to have a portion of your book dedicated to a personal equity and talking about the overall you know, enrichment and overall quality of life, if you will, and then having seven pillars. So are these seven pillars like guideposts that you like to follow or how did the seven pillars come about? Well, when I think about a life worth living, I think about these seven things, right? And I won't get into too much about it, but the first pillar is faith or something that you believe in. Because at the end of the day, you have to believe that what you're seeking, what you're pursuing is going to come to fruition, right? And I think without faith, it's very hard to pursue anything. You know what I mean? So I remember using in the book, one of my favorite poems, it's called The Man Who Thinks He Can. It's by an author by the name of Walter D. Wintel. The kind of piece that I put in it, it says, if you think you're beating, you are, right? If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can, it's almost a sense that you won't. If you think you'll lose, you've lost. For out in the world, we'll find success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in a state of mind. And when I hear that, I'm like, that's where, if we're using Nipsey, the marathon starts. You're pretty much setting your mind on a definite goal and you're going to work like relentlessly towards that goal to watch the universe stand aside and watch that goal come to pass. But if you don't have that pillar of faith, you're going to always settle for the lesser road. The road that you see, like, it's easier I can attain that. And we find a lot of people that look back on their lives and it's like, man, I wish I would have did this when I was younger. Or I wish I, you know, would have lived more or took a risk or whatever the case is. And that requires a great deal of faith. So I talk about, you know, the seven pillars in that capacity as to what we need both individually and collectively as a community to really begin to grow our equity personally um, and as a force as a unit. If you want to know more about those seven pillars, you have to wait till the book comes out, right? Yeah. The book comes out on July 22nd. I think that it's just important, man. We discount the other things that we can control, right? I talk about health. I talk about a lot of things in these seven pillars that really are important for the marathon that we run. You know, now in my practice, I'm writing to the young people, especially like invest in your health. You can't, Run a marathon if your legs can't withstand the distance. You know what I mean? So it's just, I think these are gems that we often think about, but we don't often place a priority on because we consider equity just being correlated to money. And when you talk about health, when I think about that, knowing that African-Americans and Latinos lead the country in like hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, and just culturally, it's not been something that we do very well, which is eating right. Because, you know, you think about it, you know, some of the foods we eat, don't tell me fried food doesn't taste great. So I get it. 
but making those conscious decisions of little changes, right? It's the tiny change that you make here and there that's going to have a compounding effect on your overall health. And I think having you to talk about that part of it, which it's just one of those things that when you begin to think about longevity and health, they go hand in hand. And sometimes we make bad health decisions as a community, as people of color, and shorten our life and shorten our effects that we can have and impacts that we can have for generations to come. So by making those small tweaks, I think it'll make a big difference. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And I do think that the world, I was in an Uber the other day and like I was in the Uber and we got pulled over by a cop and I was scared. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I think there's a lot of things to contribute to hypertension, you know, and some of the things that are hard to manage. But I think at the end of the day, we know what we're up against, whether that's self-inflicted or not via our food, the things that we eat, and just the experience that we have on a daily basis. I talk about undoing the trauma via therapy, for example, right? There's a lot of things that we carry with us from our family history that is important for us to really tackle head first so we can try to extend our life and run this marathon with a little less weight than we would had we not been intentional about those things regarding health and mental wellness. Yeah, that's definitely something we have to do as a, as a community. So going to Cal, part of this podcast is about education and just thinking about that experience. Cal's a pretty prestigious school. I, I think it was awesome to go there. Can you talk a little bit about going to Cal and your experience with, you know, you did graduate from there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, like what prepared you to get into Cal and your experience going there? My daughter wants to go to Cal, by the way. I didn't tell you that. but <laughs> Go Bears. There we go. Cal was amazing. You know, looking back, I see how amazing it was. I actually have an interview with the Daily Californian in a couple weeks. That's our school's newspaper. But I think that aside from the prestige, aside from, you know, playing football at Cal, I think the most important thing for me was the ability to see how different people thought, right? Like people from different communities think a lot differently than you. That's like, yo, I never had nothing and I'm trying to figure this out, you know? I'm trying to do this. I'm going to dream big. I'm going to make the next tech company is going to be acquired in a year and a half. And we're going to have C capital or whatever the case is. And young money, I wrote in the beginning about Cal and, and about my running back coach that really walked me through or kind of nurtured me as a young man. In that section, I said that the most important part was the fact that I was sitting next to the brightest minds in the country. You know what I mean? And I think it's a little different than like going into Harvard because people are going to like, It's kind of more conservative, if you will. We're in a more progressive school. We're right outside of Silicon Valley. You know what I mean? It's a public institution. So you're getting people from all walks of life that are from all different social economic statuses, but they're bright. These are dreamers. And I think that for me, that really opened my eyes to developing the entrepreneurship that was already inside of me. I'll give you a story. Me and my brothers, after I graduate, rest in peace, Mo, he was, we were trying to make an app and it was called Quirst right? It stood for quench your thirst. So what we wanted to do was deliver alcohol and beverages to events so you wouldn't have to, right? So it was like, hey, instead of like going to Costco and buying the drinks for yourself and carrying or your wedding and setting it up, we'll be the bar. We'll be the this. We'll bring it all to you. And I say that because ideas like that were bouncing around Cal's campus on a daily basis. So when you talk about thinking outside of the box, right? Developing your entrepreneurial skill set, I think that that was one of the best places that I could have learned how to do it. And I think it definitely contributed to me starting Burknell Financial Group, feeling like that was possible. 
I think the proximity is the word that you would use. The proximity of being close to those types of thinkers, right, allowed you to expand where you would normally think, especially growing up where you grew up and then only being exposed to a certain level of people in the neighborhoods that you grew up in, then stepping outside of that and being able to go into a place where these guys are, you know, basically able to run that marathon with no hindrances, just this is what we're going to do and really being able to be around some big thinkers. I think that's awesome. And I think it really speaks to getting out of one's comfort zone and right outside of your comfort zone is where everything happens. Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you about the whole premise of the podcast, Minority Money, is to change the complexion of wealth. And wanted to ask you some of these questions. So what motivates you? What inspires you to grow, learn and lead like you are? That's a great question. And now that I'm on the other side of these questions, it's kind of harder than I have sympathy for my guests, right? What motivates me, I feel like, is just a life filled with hardship, man, and trauma, right? I lost my dad when I was 12. The year before I started Burknell Financial Group, my who I call my brother, but biologically my cousin, passed away from complications with hepatitis C because he contracted the virus, you know, in Liberia before he came to the United States and didn't know. You know what I'm saying? The year after my other brother who came from Liberia, who's biologically my cousin on my mom's side, passed away in a car crash. It's like, man, you know what I mean? In some ways, I tell people like they were martyrs for this success and this like motivation for me to do what I'm doing and giving back to my community. And I say that because I feel like the legacy rests on my shoulders. I have an opportunity to share one, a testimony that could help many lives across the United States. I have the opportunity, we have the opportunity to educate a people in a greater society on the importance of wealth generation and wealth building. And I think that there's power in that. You know what I mean? So I think that through the trauma that I've experienced and through the opportunity to be a servant leader, that's motivating. That gets me up with a purpose in the morning to continue to do it, even on my most tired or the days where I'm most fatigued. Man, great answer. So you're on the fly here. I like this. I like being on this side because now you feel my pain. I, I like that. <laughs> so the next question is, do you think education plays a big part in building wealth? Absolutely. I talk about this in the book. I'm not going to spoil it, but I just think that it's hard for people to do what they don't understand. Right. And I think that's one of the hardships with minorities, because we don't really understand the power of compound interest and the reasons why we should make certain sacrifices as it pertains to our money. Right. So I think that education is important. And I want to make a clear distinction on this podcast that education does not, I repeat, does not have to be formal. You know what I mean? You can have non-traditional education and still be successful as it pertains to your money, your life, and the seven pillars that are outlined in Pay Me Inequity, right? But whatever way that you get the information, you have to learn it, learn it well, of course, make sure that it's credible, and then figure out how you can implement that information to enhance your life. And I think that's the important part. Good stuff. This one right here, because this is a part of the podcast, how has your family supported you on this journey? Now, I know you've talked a little bit about that, but what kind of support have you gotten from your family in this journey? Amazing, amazing support on the podcast. And I think that for minorities, especially family support is everything because you look left, you look right. I'll give you a story in the Wall Street Journal. It was an article that read that a black woman would only receive $33,000 in seed capital, which typically are coming from angel investors or family and friends, right? Throughout the life of her startup, whereas a white male 
throughout the life of this startup, and I think the years are like over five or eight years, would receive on average would receive one point three million dollars. Right. So really, all you have is your family from a economic standpoint, from a I'm rooting for you standpoint. You know what I mean? That's all you have. And we're talking about black women. And we talk about privilege, like a black man might be a little more privileged than a black woman. So it's like, that's all we have. So my family has supported me along the way. Of course, in the beginning, they were scared. I had a great job at a bank that were paying me a high salary to leave all that and say that I'm going to branch out and try to be a servant leader and do what I'm called to do was hard for them. But in the days when, you know, I didn't have anything but top ramen noodle juice, they bought me food. You know what I mean? And the day that I needed a word to keep me going, they gave me that encouragement. In the days that I needed money in the beginning to keep this thing alive, they did that for me. You know what I mean? And now I just feel like I'm blessed to be in a position to pay that forward. I'm blessed to see them proud. And I'm blessed that I have people to also tell the story as I continue to rise onward and upward. Awesome. Family. They're incredible. And we do need them. And they are the first people that tell us that we can do stuff. And that's awesome to hear that. The last question that I always like to do for the listeners out there that are trying to change the complexion of wealth with us, if you could offer one piece of advice to our listeners today, said we want to change the complexion of wealth, what would that piece of advice be? That one piece of advice would be that change starts with you. You need to be a living, breathing example of the process, you know what I mean, of making that financial plan, of speaking your future into the atmosphere, because I'm a firm believer that your mind has to arrive at a destination before your life does. And then you need to be proximate to people that can witness your transformation. And I think that's how it starts. There's no worth, there's no value in having the keys and not giving it or showing it to somebody else. But if you do those things, then change will spread like wildfire. And I think that that's what every minority and every person is called to do on their specific marathon. That's deep. I like it. I think we end right there on that. And I, you know what, Desarte, thanks for coming on to the show. Like I said, a lot of this happened because of you. Because you always giving me encouragement and telling me that we could do this thing and, and inspiring and motivating me as well as many other listeners that you have on your podcast and the ones that we're going to grow here. So with that, my name's Emlyn Miles Mattingly. This is the Minority Money Podcast. We are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or a CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here. And until next time.